Welcome to Purpose House Church. Today, you'll be hearing a powerful message from our latest series. Let's listen in now. So if you have a Bible, hopefully you have a Bible or on your phone or whatever you may have it, I want you to turn me to two passages of scripture. We're going to go to Romans chapter one, then we're going to flip to the right a little bit and we're going to go to Ephesians chapter one. Last week, uh, unplanned, we talked about the power of your authority or the power of your place. I could finish that today and talk about being the power of proper balance, that many people want to pursue power versus uh, their character. And there's a lot of people who operate in power who have no character. And I would prefer people to pursue character and then God endue you with power. Because you can operate in gifts and not have any character. Let me give you a little biblical example. Do you think the donkey had any character? But he operated in gifts. Have good godly character. If you call yourself a man of God, be a man of God. Call yourself a woman of God, be a woman of God. And I, too, have a righteous indignation about what the enemy is doing. But I'm not going to preach on those lines. I want to talk to you today about the power of salvation. Romans chapter 1, I'm going to read a couple of verses in your hearing, and then we're going to jump to Ephesians chapter 1. For I am not ashamed, this is Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. I'm reading out of the New King James Version. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, if you have your Bible, flip over to Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, verses, I'm going to read quite a few verses to you in your hearing. Everybody all good? Okay. Ephesians chapter 1, I'm going to begin reading in verse 3. We're going to go through verse 14, and it reads like this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, According to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, that he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory." Now, God said he would confirm his word with signs following. Just a few moments ago, you felt the presence and the spirit of God. That is the guarantee. That is the seal of everything in which you've put your faith in. Just said it right there, that the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. And when you feel that, that ought to be a guarantee to you that everything you have believed is real. And it is true. Now, I read to you out of the New King James Version, most of you probably reading in a different version. Most of the English Bibles have taken Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, and broken that down into multiple sentences so that we could handle it, so we could consume that. How many of you were able to consume what I was saying as fast as I was reading it? 
It probably didn't make a whole lot of sense to you, so we try to break things down in smaller portions so that we can try to gather some wisdom out of what we just read. So I want to break down what actually in the Hebrew and in the Greek was the longest sentence in the Bible. It's the greatest sentence ever written, but it's actually the longest sentence. A few years ago, there was a man by the name of Stanley Fish, and Stanley wrote a book called How to Write a Sentence. I need to reread this one. How to Write a Sentence, and then also How to Read a Sentence. And in his book, he looks not at just writing in general, but at what makes a sentence truly remarkable. The one kind of sentence that he greatly explores, he labels as the subordinating sentence. In this type of a sentence, the author adds phrases upon phrases to modify the basic content of the sentence. This is often how an author takes a relatively brief idea and explodes it in a variety of ways. We would call that Sunday at Purpose House. We take one little word and go an hour and a half on it. So Paul, in writing to the church at Ephesus, he uses a single sentence, and it comes in at a surprising length. It's 257 words. That's almost the entirety of the Gettysburg Address. And it's not merely the flair, if you will, of how he wrote the sentence that should strike you. It's the way that the Apostle Paul takes a basic thought that God has blessed us, verse 3. And he explores the way that God has blessed us from the widest angle possible, that God has blessed us. It's easy just to say God has blessed us. Well, how has God blessed us? We realize then by reading the text here through verse 14 that we have been blessed from the eternal past to an eternal future and everything in between. God has blessed us from the very beginning. He's blessing us now, and we're going to be blessed in eternity. God has blessed us. Then we also have been blessed because we have received redemption that was purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's in verse 7. And we realize then that the Father has blessed us by predestining us for salvation in verse 5. The Son, Jesus Christ, has blessed us because he died for us. The Spirit has blessed us and is blessing us by sealing us for a future redemption beyond our wildest dreams. It's going to be better than any vacation that you have ever imagined in your life. It's going to be better than a trek through Europe. It's going to be better than a trek through downtown Carterville. It's going to be amazing what God has in store for his people. God has blessed us. And all of this blessing we receive one way. We receive it in Christ. So if you sit today or wherever you are under the sound of my voice and you are not in Christ, then at the moment, this text is not applicable to you. You are only living in the overflow of everybody else's blessings. But you yourself are not blessed because you are not in Christ you are still in condemnation. But to those of us that are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. If you have Christ in you, you are not condemned. May I just make this public announcement to you? I don't care what the doctor says, the lawyer says, a judge says, your friend says, you are not condemned because you are in Christ Jesus and you shall not die, but you shall live and declare the works of the Lord. That's when you are in Christ. And that word in Christ or that theme in Christ, it runs through everything that Paul is writing here. About a dozen or so times in the passages, he runs this thought about being in Christ. 
And all of this stuff that we get because we are in Christ should result in only one response to the people that are in Christ. The one response should not be, uh, oh, I got it. No, the one response to everything that we have in Christ is praise. So if praise offends you, it's because you don't realize what you have because you're in Christ. If you'd step back and start counting your blessings, the only response that is applicable to understanding what you have in Christ is to praise him. Because you don't deserve any of it. But because you're in Christ, you now receive it. And all of this is presented to us in a single sentence. The English Bibles don't present it that way. But it's all presented to you in a single sentence, one single thought about everything that Christ has given to us. Now, I spent a year, uh, I think it was two years ago, reading through the Bible from a different translation than what I preach from. Because I have to retrain my brain. I grew up King James only. When Jesus was crucified, a King James version of the Bible fell out from underneath his arm. That's how I grew up. Maybe you didn't grow up that way. That's how I grew up. It was King James. And if you really wanted to be holy, you had a King James version, Thompson chain edition. Anybody else in the house? Just say glory. You felt the glory, right? Thompson chain glory. So I spent a year reading through the Bible in the English standard version, or most of you would know it as the ESV. And let me read it to you the same sentence the way it was originally done, because most of you have periods and you take a break. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless in love. He has predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, things on the earth, in whom we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory, in whom also you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Now, maybe I read it too fast for you, so let me break it down again. We Christians are in Christ. Because we are in Christ, we now have a new model of the way in which we live. There is a new way to exist. The old way doesn't work anymore. We now have a new way to live and a new way to look at life. It used to be when problems would come our way, we would feel hopeless. But now that I am in Christ, I am not hopeless. I am hopeful. There is a new way of looking at it. In verse 4, God chose us in Christ. You didn't choose him, he chose you. You didn't just show up here on this Sunday morning because you chose him. No, you showed up here because he chose you. That changes the whole dynamic that, that, because I'm not worthy of even being chosen, but God so loved the world. Put your own name in there. For God so loved Jason that he gave his only begotten son. God chose to send Jesus Christ to die so that I wouldn't have to die, but that I might have life and have life more. But that puts a whole different spin on it. He chose me. We didn't choose him. And he chose us in Christ before he created the world and all that is in it. That's verse 5. So he chose you long before you ever knew you needed a choosing. 
Before he created the world, before he created the stars and the moon, before he created all those things, he chose you. There was a day when he looked back all through eternity and he said in 2023 in Heron, Illinois, I'm going to have a worship service and I want to make sure that you're in it. I chose you to be here in this moment on this day because there was going to be something that was going to come in your life and the enemy was going to say, he's got you but God said he doesn't have you I chose you and because I chose you you have every blessing that I have to offer it's in your life because you are in Christ I didn't think I was going to preach I thought I was going to teach a little while he chose us in Christ before he created the world and all that is in it then in verse 5 he chose us to be holy and blameless before him. Now that's an interesting line, right? Because we were all born in sin and shaped in iniquity, but before the foundation of the world, he chose me and he chose me to be holy and blameless. So he had to have a plan to make me holy and blameless because I'm actually guilty of everything that the enemy wants to say that I have done. If the enemy steps up and says something about me, it's true. But the issue is that even though what he is accusing me of is true, I have an advocate with the father who has stepped in between me and my guilt and said, he's not guilty. I'm going to pay the price for him. That's how I can stand holy and blameless before God. And we are in Christ, predestined. God had a plan to adopt us as sons through Christ. Adopt us as sons. And God's purpose is done according to his kindness. Now, this little line here really liberated me when I was a kid because I grew up thinking that God was a cosmic cop. God was mean. He was angry. You step out of line, it's like whack-a-mole. Bounce you back in. You get out of line, bounce you back in. And everywhere you go, God's out for you. You go to school, God's going to get you. You go to the store, God's going to get you. You go out in the yard, God's going to get you. He's just a wet mole, but it was done out of his kindness. God is a kind God. If he was a mean God, he would not have sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross of Calvary for your sins. He would have let you die right how you are. But he is a kind God. He is a good God. And he's like, I don't want you to die. I don't want you to be sick. I don't want you to be in pain. I don't want you to be in sorrow. He does it all out of his kindness. And then God's will is to bless us. Can I say that again? God's will is to bless us. That's verse 5. Then verse 6, God will use our life to bring praise and worship unto him. So God uses our life to bring praise and worship to him. Then verses 6 and then 7 and 8, God has freely freely lavished his grace upon us. He just lavishes it on. Anybody been around somebody who lavished the perfume or the cologne? <laughs> we'll step a little over here and say, how you doing? God, if you will, took his grace like a perfume and lavished it on you. He poured so much of it on you, you can't get away from it. You just smell like grace. You look like grace. You live like grace. You just, all your life, you're in his grace. He just lavishes. How many of y'all thankful he didn't just say, oh, little dabble, do you? He lavished his grace upon us. We are greatly loved by God in Christ. We are the beloved, verse 6. Verse 7, we have redemption in his blood. We've been redeemed by the blood. We have forgiveness of our trespasses. Aren't you glad that when you get to heaven, you don't have to stand there and say, oh, yeah, that was me. We have been forgiven. Our trespasses have been forgiven. He has made known to us the mystery of his will. Verse 9. Verse 11, we have an inheritance according to his purpose and his will. What I'm going to gain has nothing to do with the enemy's plan is for my life. Everything I have to gain is according to God's purpose and God's will in my life. Then verse 12, he will manifest his glory by what he is doing in us. You, through your life, will manifest, bring to light 
or expose or reveal the glory of God and what he's going to do in your life. Verse 13, we've believed the gospel. And because we've believed the gospel, we are sealed in him with the Holy Spirit. There's a seal over the top of you. It's sealed. You are signed, sealed, and delivered. The Holy Spirit is the promise to those who believe in the gospel. Verse 13. Then it says the Holy Spirit indwells our life. And not only does it indwell our life, the Holy Spirit personally interacts with each of us individually. The Holy Spirit is a pledge. It's our inheritance from God over to us. And it's a guarantee that we belong to God. And the pledge is God's guarantee of a final redemption that means we get to live with him forever. That is what salvation means. That we are in Christ and blessed because we are in Christ. And all of that will come to you if you get into Christ. If you get born again, then all of a sudden all those things become applicable to your life. You can read that and say, man, that's pretty amazing. But unless you're willing to make a decision, then that doesn't apply to you. And so being born again and receiving Christ or what we would call salvation is the very essence of Christianity. Can I tell you, all the things we do in church, those are amazing. But most of what we do is for saved people. Because it would be pointless for us to have a healing service and not everybody in the building be saved. I'm going to get tired in here a minute because I'm going to rub up against a few theologies. There's nothing wrong with a healing service. But just because you get healed doesn't mean you're saved. And we could have a prophecy conference and people show up here and we could prophesy over their lives. But the prophecy doesn't matter if they're not saved. What good does it tell me what tomorrow holds if you don't know what your eternity holds? So the essence of everything is you got to get saved. You got to be saved. And the power of everything else we do, the gifts of the Spirit, and all those other things are all a byproduct of the greatest miracle, which is being saved. You've got to get saved. You can go, you can chase miracles and chase signs and chase wonders. But my friend, you ought to reverse that around. And these signs shall follow them that believe. Believe what? Believe on Jesus Christ. Because I'm going to tell you something, there's a whole lot of people who chase all that stuff and the minute that a crisis arises, they don't realize the power of their salvation, so they give up their place because they don't realize everything that is afforded to them, that there's a different way to look at things and a different way to live. And if you would understand what the power of God's salvation is in your life, you wouldn't walk away from it so easy. And people are going to ask me, well, do you believe in once saved, always saved? I believed in a blessed assurance. And no one can pluck you out of the hand of God, but you can walk out of it. The devil cannot make you get out of the hand of God. You willingly make a choice and a decision. And the minute you do, this is what the Lord said to Peter. Your enemy wants to sift you as wheat. And so if you step out of the hand of God, all of these promises that I'm reading about, you have taken yourself out of the protection of Almighty God. So if there was ever a time to be in Christ and make sure your calling and election is yes and amen, it is right now. Because the enemy is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may of hour. So you need to make a decision today, whether you have not done it yet or you've done it in the past, that as for me and my house, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I'm going to be in Christ Jesus. So the essence of Christianity is the gospel. And what is the gospel? It is good news. What is the good news? You can be saved. Let me read Romans chapter 1 verses 16 and 17 again. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God. What is the power of God? The gospel of Christ. To salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first. Also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith to faith as it is written. The just shall live by 
faith. Now, the entire theme of this epistle that Paul wrote to the church in Rome, we call it the book of Romans. It is a letter that Paul was writing them. The entire theme of it, the very essence of it, its intrinsic nature, its indispensable quality of something is salvation. You got to be saved. You got to be saved. You got to be saved. I mean, every chapter, you got to be saved. You got to be in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And I'm sure people get tired of hearing that, but if you don't understand what it means, then maybe we ought to repeat it. Verse 17 is the very verse that Martin Luther was wrestling with. And when he finally came to a conclusion about verse 17, it transformed his life. He was reading a word from the Lord because that's what this is. He's reading a word from the Lord. He's, he's going over it and meditating on it. He's wrestling with it. And may I tell you, there's many scriptures I wrestle with. It's not that I don't believe them. I'm just trying to figure it out. And he's wrestling with it. And he comes to this conclusion and it transforms his life. And because his life was transformed by a word from the Lord, it then has a major effect on the history of the entire world. And so once you realize what salvation has brought into your life and you begin to realize the power of the gospel and the power of salvation and the power that it has to transform a life, it will transform your mind. It'll transform your heart. It'll transform your marriage. It'll transform your finances. It'll transform your children. It'll transform your grandchildren. It'll transform your great-grandchildren and it'll have a domino effect. The power of the salvation of Jesus Christ can change this world if we allow a word from the Lord to transform our minds and our hearts and radically change us I mean when you walk in the hospital and you realize what salvation has brought into your life and it gives you the ability to take something that's on the inside of you and transfer it out to somebody else it will radically change this nation but if you don't realize what you have you'll never use it Anybody ever got a Christmas present and you thought, man, this is pretty cool, but you really didn't know how to use it? I bought a drone just because I don't have anything else to do with my spare time. So I'm reading the instructions. I have no idea what they mean. It says, pick it up and turn it horizontally three times. I'm like, cool. So I pick it up and I turn it horizontally three times. <laughs> then it says, take it and turn it vertically three times. I'm like, cool. So I turn it vertically three times. I did this more times than I care to admit <laughs> publicly. I was reading the instructions, but over to the right, there was these little pictures that explained how to turn it horizontally and vertically. Vertically was not this. Vertically was to take the top of it, point it vertically, and turn it three times like that. I had to pray through, apologize to the Chinese man who wrote the instruction manual. If I had just looked at the example, then I would have known how to operate what the creator created. I'm going to leave it right there. See, I know that I have salvation. I, 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 I've got it. I received it. It came. I got it. And I'm trying to operate in a way, but I'm not following the example because I really don't know what I've got and I don't know how to operate in it. God didn't call you and save you for you to sit in a church pew or on a church seat. He called you to operate in it. And he wants you to look at the examples that he's put in there and that's how you operate, right? After you have been saved, after you've been called and after you are following Christ, when he called the disciples and they left their jobs, they didn't just go back to living everyday normal lives. What they did was they laid hands on the sick, they cast out devils. That's what they did after they realized that that's how they're supposed to operate because they have salvation but if you don't know what the power you have then you'll never operate in it and may I just suggest that some of you need to go back and read the examples again verses the word of the Lord can have an incalculable effect on world history 
Because the word of the Lord can have a profound effect on your life personally. And the world will never change until you're changed personally. If you want our government to change, it's going to begin on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights and in church services. That's where it's going to change. I got news for you. I don't care what your favorite person puts on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. That is not going to change a thing. What will change something is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it starts in us first. So Paul's writing has a certain flow to it through the book of Romans. He begins verse 16, for I am not ashamed. And he uses the word for. And because he uses the word for, it connects it to verse 15. Paul there said, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Why was he eager to preach the gospel to them that were in Rome? Because he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. You will never be eager to do the will of God if you are ashamed of the power of God. You will never operate in your full capacity if you are ashamed or stressed out or have anxiety about the will of God for your life. You cannot be ashamed. And so he says, I'm not ashamed for it is the power of God. The reason why he was not ashamed, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. So you will not preach the gospel if you don't want everyone to be saved. You will not preach the gospel if you only want a white church. You won't preach the gospel if you only want a black church. But if you want everyone to believe, then you'll preach the gospel to whosoever will, let him come. See, what we do is we begin to preach the gospel to make it fit the way in which we want it to fit. But you're just supposed to cast it out there and for whosoever will. To everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. So how is the gospel the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes? He says, here's how, for in it, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Now, this is not a new idea that Paul just come up with or man that come up with. No, he goes back and he talks about, all right, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And Paul goes back to Habakkuk chapter two, verse four, and he says, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Now, Paul is using a figure of speech in verse 16. Now, we talked about how a sentence happens, and now we're going to talk about a figure of speech. And he uses a figure of speech that I hear many of you use. It's where you use an understatement of the affirmative to express the negative to the contrary. Everybody good? It's where you use the affirmative, an understatement of the affirmative to express the negative of the contrary, like she a bad girl. What you really mean is, whew, she's a really good girl. Man, they is a wicked musician. By stating that, you're really saying they're a really good musician. So Paul is using this term of speech and he's saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel. What he means is, I really love the gospel. And because I really love the gospel, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The, because I'm so enamored with the gospel and I see what the gospel can do to people's lives, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul was saying, I, I glory in the gospel. I'm proud of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I can say that as pastor of this church, I am proud of this church. I'm proud of the men of this church. I'm proud of the parents that are in this church. I'm proud that you glory in the gospel. I'm proud that you bring your children and you're watching them be baptized. And not only are you watching them be baptized, you're baptizing your children. I'm proud 
proud of you that you are stopping generational curses and you're saying listen that ran in my family till it met me and when it met me it met the power of God that is the gospel of Jesus Christ that lives on the inside and there is no weapon that is formed against me that can ever prosper that is being not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ I glory in the gospel and Paul's main thrust in the whole writing was that the main need of every human being is that every human being needs to be reconciled to God. Every human's need is to receive salvation. So let me just talk about salvation and what it's not for a moment. Salvation is not confirmation. Salvation is not church membership. Salvation is not water baptism. Because water baptism is an outward declaration of a decision that has already been made. Salvation is not signing a card. Salvation is not shaking the hands of a preacher. Salvation is not standing up to accept Jesus. Salvation is not raising your hand to accept Jesus. Salvation is not joining a church that states they have all the truth. Salvation is not saying prayers. Salvation is not memorizing Bible verses. Salvation is not being moral. Salvation is not being good. The new birth of salvation is not any of those things. Nicodemus had done almost all of those things listed above. Yet Jesus said to him, you must be born again. On the other hand, there was a thief hanging on the cross, which did none of those things. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. The difference between Nicodemus at that time and the thief is that the thief did one necessary thing. He was converted. He accepted Jesus as his personal savior. He repented and he turned to God with his whole heart. Let me give you some text so you can write them down. Matthew chapter 9 verses 1 through 7. Luke chapter 7 verses 48 through 50. Luke chapter 18 verses 9 through 14. Luke chapter 23 verse 43. John chapter 8 verses 1 through 10. Tell us that exact story. There is one thing that is necessary beyond living moral, living good, living what you feel is right. All those things. You have to be converted and you have to make a decision that Jesus Christ is Lord over your life. All those other things will not matter unless you have been converted. Because I've been around all kinds of people who have all kinds of forms of religion. They have a form of godliness, but are denying the power thereof. And you can have all of the forms and not be saved. And it comes down towards your, your heart, towards Christ. How many of you have ever seen an apple that is rotten? And the only way you knew it was rotten is you bit into it. It looked wonderful on the outside. So let us say that I took that apple that you didn't know was rotten, but it had been on your counter through the 21 days of prayer and fasting and you didn't eat it for 21 days. It's nasty, shag nasty on the inside. And you bring it to me and I put a coat of wax on that and I preserve the outside of it. And just because I preserve the outside of it doesn't mean that I changed anything on the inside of it. Y'all mopping what I'm dropping? You can preserve all you want on the outside, but salvation is an inside job. And there's a whole lot of people waxing it and putting makeup on it and painting all on the outside, but you take a bite into them and you'll find out what's on the inside. I want you to be pure and holy and righteous on the inside. And if you on the inside, they can taste and see that the Lord is good. Some of y'all writing that down, you're going to go to the family reunion and you're going to use that example. Let me tell you, you ain't nothing but a waxed apple. Because the issue of that apple had nothing to do with its outer layer, the skin. It had everything to do with its core. And the core of a man is his heart. And salvation is an issue of the heart. New birth is a new creation from above. It's the direct operation of the word of God and the Holy Spirit upon a person's life. It changes a person completely. It makes them a new creature in Christ. 
2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7 talks about a new creature experience there. In Ephesians chapter 4, it talks about a new creation, the work of a new creation. In Romans chapter 1, in Romans chapter 10, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it talks about a salvation experience. In 1 Corinthians 12, and then in Galatians chapter 3, it talks about baptism into the body of Christ. In Romans chapter 8, it's the experience of being made free from the law of sin and death. In Romans chapter verses 14 it's talking about the adoption into the family of God Acts chapter 26 and verse 18 it's turning from Satan and turning towards God in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 1 John chapter 1 Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5 it's the washing away of all of your sins in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38 it is the remission of your sins in Colossians chapter 1 2 Corinthians chapter 5 it's the reconciliation of your life to God in 1 Peter chapter chapter 1 and then again in verse 18 and in James chapter 1 it's the begetting of one who now becomes a child of God that is what happens when you give your heart to Jesus Christ he takes the heart of a man the core of a man he reconciles that he heals it he purifies it he gives it grace he gives it mercy and then that man who was once rotten on the inside can now stand before God and be right standing before God and can enter the throne room of God boldly because there's nothing on the inside of me that's rotten that cannot be in his presence. So how do you get that in your life? The new birth is brought about four actions of a man and man being everybody. When any person does these four things, they can be assured, a blessed assurance that they are born again of the Spirit of God and that they have been accepted and adopted into the family of God. Let me give you the four acts. First, the man must recognize that he is a sinner and he is lost. I don't care if you're three years old, you're, you're 300 years old. A man must recognize that he is a sinner and he is lost. I don't care how much good you have done. I don't care what their last name is. I don't care what neighborhood you live in. If you have not accepted Jesus Christ, you are lost. And I know some of you say, this is the most hateful message you've ever done. No, this is the most loving message I have ever delivered in my life. You are lost and you don't have to remain lost if you recognize that you're lost. You are without God and because you're without God, you are without hope. Romans chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 1, 1 John chapter 1. That's the first act. There's a recognition. Number two, there's an admittance. I admit. And what am I admitting? I admit that Jesus Christ died on the cross. And the reason why he went to the cross was to save me from my sin by using his own blood. So I have to admit that. Number three, after I admit that, I have to make a decision to come to God. And how do you come to God? Well, because we are born in sin and sin takes us away from God. God is back there and we're sinning and we're walking away from God. To make a decision to turn towards God, we use this word, repent. And the word repent is a turning away from the direction that we were going. And now we're no longer going that way. We are coming to God. And in repentance, you're saying, I'm walking away from all of those things. And I am now turning to God. And some of us who have been in church a long time, we need to make a turn back towards God. My righteous indignation is wrapped up in one word. That out outside of your repentance, you are giving an occasion for the enemies of the cross to blaspheme the very actions of the cross. Because you say you're saved, but you're living like the devil. It is impossible for a man full of the Holy Ghost and a woman full of the Holy Ghost to do some of the things that I have dealt with in the last week. And you can play church all you want, but there is a time that you need to come to God. Don't tell me that you're a Christian and you're living like the devil. You need to make a turn right now because those that have never received Christ are saying, I'm acting just like them. Turn from your wicked ways. If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves, turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven. 
The devil's not holding up revival. The church is holding up revival. It's the backslidden Christians that are holding up revival. How in the world can God give us AI when we have Aikens in the camp? You've been covering that stuff up. You've been hiding it in your tent and it's eating you alive. You need to make a decision to come to God. You need to turn from your wicked ways and come to God. And the church isn't going to stone you. The pastor's not going to stone you. You're stoning yourself. And it's affecting just like Achan. It destroyed his wife. It destroyed his children. It destroyed his animals. It destroyed everything. Clean out your tent so the church can take the promised land. Either word, here's what I'm saying. Either get on board or get out. Make a decision. As for me, in my house, we will serve the Lord. Go ahead, send me the email. I said it last week. I would rather be an anointed prude than a backslidden preacher. Come to God. Repent of your sins. Turn away from all sin. Plead the blood of Jesus. Through the name of Jesus Christ over your life. And you shall be born again. The Holy Spirit, when you do that, will definitely make you a new creature in Christ Jesus. Cleansing you from all sin by the authority of the word of God and by the blood of Christ that was shed to atone for your sins. I want to tell you that the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, before I get to step four, the power of Jesus Christ will make a new man walking in your shoes. You'll come in here abuser and walk out of here a lover. You'll come in here an addict and walk out of here a born again believer. The power of God's word can change your life. It is the most pure, holy thing you could ever have in your life life it'll change you from the inside out it's the authority of the word of God the blood of Jesus Christ what can wash away sin stain? nothing but the blood of Jesus my advice my counsel all of our counseling services here cannot wash away your sin but the blood of Jesus Christ and the only way to apply the blood of Jesus Christ is to repent of your sins it's not to say oh you know I need to meet with you about that no it's to get your posture right before an almighty God and say it is me oh Lord who stands in the need of prayer it's me oh Lord that needs to be washed by your blood make me pure make me holy make me a new creature in Jesus Christ Christ it cleanses you from all sin then the fourth thing you have to believe in your heart now I understand that people have misappropriated the word believe but the word believe is a total assimilation total assimilation now listen if I wanted to become a Georgia Bulldog fan I said, I believe that Georgia is going to win the national championship and Georgia is going to be my team. The first thing I would do is I would go home and throw all my Notre Dame stuff out the window. I'd burn it in a pile and then everything would be Georgia Bulldog. I would be Michael's twin. I would totally assimilate. I'd have the flip-flops, the socks. I'd have the knee-highs. I'd have the shorts. I'd have the undershirt. I'd have the hat. I'd have the sunglasses. I'd have the bumper sticker. I'd have the license plate. I'd have the word dog spelled incorrectly on everything I own. I'm totally assimilated into it. And if I'm going to be a believer in Jesus Christ, I'm going to have the shoes on. I'm going to have the socks on. I'm going to have the belt on. I'm going to have the shield on. I'm going to have the helmet on. Everything in my life is about Jesus Christ. So in other words, I'm going to go home and throw all the things out that have nothing to do with Jesus Christ. Believe, total assimilation. Believe where? From the heart. In the core of the man. That area that really is wicked because a man's heart is deceitfully wicked and no man can know it. The heart of the man. And when you confess with your mouth, many people don't want to speak out of their mouth because when you speak out of your mouth, because out of the the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So God wants to know what's going on in your heart by what you say. So you have to believe in your heart, totally assimilate your heart, confess with your mouth, 
that he does indeed forgive you of your sins, that he does indeed cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And then there has to be something said by you. Romans chapter 10 tells us you have to declare, make a declaration, right? We talked about that just a few moments ago about shout for joy. You're making a declaration. I may not have it, but I'm about to get it. Declare that Jesus is Lord, meaning he is sovereign, and you shall be saved. Those are the four actions of a man. And when you do that, that path to salvation and once you've been saved, you then will understand the power that is attached with your experience. Paul walks us through it in Romans chapter 1. He says, when you realize this, you cannot be ashamed of the gospel. And if you're not ashamed of the gospel, then you have to proclaim it boldly. Be bold in what you proclaim. I don't know what just happened in the last 20 minutes, but the clock just moved from 1144. So I'm way over my time. What just happened in this house? Everybody good? I promise you I'll get you out of here quick. If you got to go, God bless you. I love you. Uh, if you're going to go to the restaurant, I would like a, a Thai D pineapple fried rice. Level three, bring it to the office. I'm going to be tired when I get done. But I'm not ashamed of the gospel. People have no problem giving the devil five and six and seven and eight hours and hundreds of dollars. But my Lord, the preacher goes over 45 minutes. We out of here. It's the first time some of y'all ever ran the aisles. Well, glory. I got to get to Bob Evans. That food's terrible anyway. Golden Crowd's closed down. The only buffet is in the house of God. It's where you can come in and a happy meal or turn into a buffet. I better quit. I just looked. I'm on page 15 of 28. My wife's like, hey, man, you need to quit. You cannot be ashamed to proclaim it boldly. Let our broadcast go everywhere. As for Purpose House, we believe in the power of Jesus Christ. We believe in the blood of the Lamb. And he is the only way. He is the truth, the life. He is the door. He is the only way. Proclaim the gospel boldly and unashamedly. And to do do that, you first have to believe it. You're not going to profess something you don't believe. So I believe you're healed. Proclaim something unashamedly, boldly. You got to believe it. But to believe it, you have to understand it. The gospel is about salvation. Salvation is needed by every person. Because Romans chapter 3 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Salvation is needed by every person. Number two, salvation requires the power of God. The gospel does not tell people about the power of God. It is the power of God for salvation. This means that salvation is not something that sinners can attain by their own efforts or good works. If that were so, then Christ need not die on the cross of Calvary. Salvation is not a joint project. This is not something you're going to work together on. God has done his part, and then you're just going to contribute your part. Nope, God has done all of it. Now, many people say, well, don't I need to believe? You need to operate in faith. But the very faith that you need to operate in you didn't have in the first place because God gives every man a measure of faith. So you have nothing in it. It's all because of God. So I just love all these super spiritual church people that walk in there like, oh, I'm so holy and I'm so wonderful. I'm like, you didn't do a thing. And that's why they don't worship and that's why they don't praise God and that's why they don't like other people who do because they think they did it. And I know that he did. I know I didn't do it. And I knew that he took him to do everything. So he's worthy of all the praise, all the glory, and all the honor because I didn't do a thing. He does it all. So salvation does not really depend on a human decision, but it depends on the power of God. It requires that God impart new life to a dead sinner. And it's impossible for a man to bring that about. When Jesus went in John chapter 11, he went to the tomb of Lazarus. And he said, Lazarus, come forth. The bystanders no doubt thought what many of you think of me. He's crazy. He's speaking to a dead man who has been in the tomb for four days. There'll be people come here and you're like, that ain't never going to happen. Pastor's crazy. They're crazy. He'd been dead. He'd been the biggest drug dealer. He'd been the biggest alcoholic. But let Jesus speak his name. 
just, just let Jesus speak his name. And even though they may be bound when he speaks their name, they're still going to leap towards Jesus. They're still going to fall towards Jesus. So he says, Lazarus, come forth. And the power of God imparts life to a dead man. And that's what the gospel does. There is nothing that Lazarus could have done to bring himself back to life. He couldn't do anything. He was dead. He wasn't even realizing that he was dead. He was just dead. He had no concept of anything, but then he heard a name, and he had to come. And the word of the Lord brought him back to life. And this is the same thing that happens even today. People come, they've been sitting here, and they're dead. And you may be thinking, all that has went on here today is craziness. It's ludicrous. But can I tell you that you're hearing the word of the Lord? And because you're hearing the word of the Lord, it's Jesus speaking to you. And it's the same call that Jesus did there at the grave of Lazarus. And somebody brought you here to hear the words of Jesus. And he's going to call your name and you're going to come out alive. You think, I just showed up at church. No, you didn't just show up at church. The Lord knew you were coming because he's getting ready to call your name. And I don't care what you're addicted to. I don't care what habits you got. I don't care what you're going on in your life. Even if you're bound, you come towards Jesus when he calls your name. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the, wor- the world through wisdom did not know God. As smart as they were, they couldn't figure it out. So it pleased God that through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So all this stuff that people call foolishness, your wisdom isn't going to save you. It's the thing you're making fun of and mocking that's happening in this building right now that will save you. It's through what we call foolishness, the message and the preaching of it is how we're saved. Salvation, number three, salvation demands the righteousness of God. And this is probably one point that most pastors would take out of their sermons. But in verse 17, Paul explains why the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. He says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. It's revealed to us, the righteousness of God. Now, in that verse, in verse 17, you can go read it for yourself. Paul does not lead off and say that it exposes the love of God. He doesn't begin with the love of God. He begins with the righteousness of God. If God was only love and we did not need righteousness, then we would not need a savior. But because God is righteous first, that's why he loves us. Because he loves us because he's righteous and because unrighteousness cannot stand in his presence. He's righteous first. And because of his love, we can become righteous. Because listen... The love of God is not a stumbling block to anyone. Everybody tells you, God is love, and we should love everybody like God loves everybody. The love of God is not a stumbling block to anyone. But the gospel is a stumbling block. So it has nothing really to do with the love of God that is the stumbling block. The stumbling block is the righteousness of God. Because everybody wants God to be loved because then he could be my best buddy and he's my co-pilot and we just go everywhere together and you know, he just loves me. No, he's righteous. And because he's righteous, I need some way to be righteous to be in his presence. If I want God to be not my co-pilot, but my pilot, the only way he's going to get in the car is not because he loves me, but because I have a right to be in his presence. And that is the righteousness of God. And our whole world right now wants to talk about the love of God, but nobody wants to talk about the righteousness of God. But because his wrath is always towards unrighteous, and nobody wants to talk about the wrath of God, we want to talk about the love of God. But if you want to be in the love of God, then you need to get saved so you avoid the wrath of God. Here we go. That's the meanest sermon you've ever preached in your life. No, you can change. You say, I can't change. Yes, you can. If you turn your life over to Jesus Christ, you will become a new creature in Christ Jesus. All things are passed away and behold, all things become new. If God is righteous and we are not, We need a savior. We need something or someone that can make us right standing before God. 
The gospel reveals God's righteous character, which shows us our need, our desperate need for salvation. And because we realize the righteousness of God, it should drive us to the cross. I don't know if you know this or not, but we're all guilty. We're guilty. When the enemy comes and he whispers things into my ear, he's technically correct. Technically, he's correct. And he comes up and he talks about the time that I did this or I did that or you did this or you did that. And you're standing there going, well, I I did that. And so you think, well, he's telling the truth, but he's only technically telling the truth. I mean, technically, you're correct. I did that. I'm guilty. I'm guilty of the actions. I'm guilty of the thoughts. I'm guilty of the sins. I committed those. And without someone or something intervening on my behalf, then the sentence is death. For the wages of sin are death. But thanks be to God, someone and something did show up. And I'm not standing on this side of the cross guilty of what I have done. I don't plead guilty and I don't even plead not guilty because if I plead not guilty, I'd be lying. So the only thing I could do is plead the blood. Because someone and something happened. I now, when the enemy comes and he begins to accuse me, I can say I plead the blood. See, in Revelation, it talks about we're going to get a white stone. A white stone. You say, what in the world would that mean? It means something to us, especially in the New Testament church, because something and someone happened. See, in the Old Testament, they would stone people to death. But before there was a stoning, there was a a sham of a trial, if you will. And they would take them to the center of town and accusations would be hurled. And the judge would stand with two rocks behind his back, one that was black and one that was white. And he listened to the case. And if he brought out the black rock, you were guilty and worthy of death. But if he brought out the white rock, you were deemed innocent and free to go and to live the rest of your life. And Revelation says, we, the believers who are in Christ, because the accuser of the brethren stands before God, hurling accusations day and night hurling them and you're standing there in the courtroom of heaven and the accuser of the brethren is standing there hurling accusations at you and hurling accusations at you and if you don't know the power of salvation you're going to stand there with all kinds of anxiety and stress in that courtroom but if you know the power of salvation and know where you are you know which kind of rock's coming Because the same judge is also your Savior. The judge is also your defense attorney. And so you've got a stacked case, my friend. The accuser, the brother, is hurling accusations to the judge. And the judge says, how do you plead? And you're like, "Uh, the blood. And so when God sees you. He doesn't see what the enemy is accusing you of. He sees the blood. And then a white stone comes out and you're free to go. Enter in. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And enter into your rest. But that is not applicable to you if you're not in Christ. To come into Christ, it requires some mention or some expression of faith to everyone who believes. From faith to faith. This begins in faith. And it ends in faith. And for time's sake, I'm not going to get into all of us that get wrapped up in works. But it begins in faith. And it ends in faith. Because if it was about works, how would you know when you have got enough work established to be saved? But it has nothing to do with your works. It has everything to do with having faith in God's grace faith so with every head bowed with every eye closed I'm wondering today if you would begin in faith would you have faith enough to believe that God brought you here in this moment 
for you to walk out of here a different person. To be changed from being outside of Christ into Christ. And sir or ma'am, all you have to do is four things. You got to believe. You got to come to God. You have to admit. And you have to declare that he is Lord. Now, you don't have to scream it so loud that I hear it, but you need to to scream it loud enough that hell hears it. There has to be a declaration from your heart that comes out your mouth that he is Lord. And he is Lord over everything in your life. He's Lord. So, Lord, just as a public declaration, we come to you today in faith. We come, Lord, believing in who you are and, Lord, needing to become one of yours. And, Lord, we admit, we come, Lord, to you and we admit that we have fallen short of your glory. Lord, we have messed it up. We've made a mess of it. We've tried it our own way. We've tried it in our own wisdom. So, Lord, to sum it up, we've sinned. We've sinned, Lord. We've sinned in our minds. We've sinned with our hands. We've sinned with our feet. We've sinned, Lord, in our hearts. We've sinned. And Father, we need you, Lord, to forgive us of all of our sin, all of our unrighteousness, and all of our trespasses. We ask, Lord, that you, Lord, would be faithful and just to forgive us of all of our unrighteousness and all of our sin. And Father, I believe that you so loved me that you gave your only begotten Son that when I would believe on you, I would not perish, but that I would have everlasting life. I believe that. And Lord, because I believe that, Lord, my whole heart, my whole heart believes that. Therefore, Lord, I declare that you are Lord. Jesus is Lord. And sovereign over every area of my life and my heart, my home, my marriage, my finances, he's Lord. So be the Lord over our lives right now. In the matchless name of Jesus Christ, I pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. Would you stand with me across the building? Thank you for listening today. Be sure to check out our podcast weekly, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. You can visit PurposeHouseChurch.org to find out more information about Purpose House Church. Be sure to join us right here next week.